Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. And your donation is tax deductible. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show. This week on Making Contact. When peace come, they read the emancipation law to the colored people. They, the freed slaves, spent that night singing and shouting. They wasn't slaves no more. That's former slave Pierce Harper talking in 1937 uh, and recalling uh, what happened in 1865 when the slaves in Texas learned that they had been freed, emancipated two and a half years earlier by Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. So certainly the singing and the shouting and the celebrating of those slaves uh, happened quite late. Juneteenth also known as Juneteenth Independence Day or Freedom Day, is the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, it was on June 19th, Major General Gordon Granger came to Galveston, Texas to inform a reluctant community that President Abraham Lincoln two years earlier had abolished slavery in the U.S. and to comply with his directive immediately. I'm Anita Johnson, and this is From Juneteenth to Reparations, the Freedom Promise of Unfinished Resolve on Making Contact. In this show, we'll trace the history of Juneteenth from the late 19th century freedmen colonies and settlement celebrations. Presented by Dr. Shanette Garrett-Scott, a historian of gender, race, and capitalism, she shares a history of the African-American narrative that's rarely explored. The end of the Civil War did not immediately come to Texas. I mean, it was June 2nd, 1865, uh, before the Confederate General Edmund Kirby Smith finally surrendered to Union forces uh, in Galveston. So slaveholders in Texas really refused to acknowledge that the war was over, and they refused to give up their slaves. Now, holding on to such a fantasy, I know you're probably thinking, how could they continue to do this? But it really wasn't as hard as you as you would think. That's because Texas was really kind of insulated during the Civil War uh, because of the Confederate blockade. There weren't that many battles that happened in Texas. So the, the Texas was really shielded from the brunt of the Civil War. In fact, slaveholders, especially those in Mississippi and Louisiana, would bring their slaves to Texas to hide them from the oncoming um, Union lines. So uh, at the end of the Civil War, there were untold you know, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of slaves that were added to the 180,000 slaves that were already living uh, here in Texas. So Union Brigadier uh, General Gordon Granger, and that's his picture there at that bottom, um, arrived uh, with uh, with about 1,800 Union troops at Galveston in mid-July. Don't really know the exact date. But on June 19th, Granger made news of freedom official. He stepped onto the balcony of Ashton Villa, which was the former headquarters of the um, Army of the Confederate States of America, and he read General Orders Number 3, And this order informed the slaves that the war was over um, and that they had been freed by Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation two and one half years 
earlier. Now the reactions of these um, newly emancipated slaves was mixed. I mean, you had some people who stood in utter disbelief. People shouted prayers to God, but most sang and danced right there in the streets. So I wanna take a moment really to correct some misconceptions about emancipation. Now, it is true that Texas slaveholders and Confederates had suppressed news of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, that went into effect in 1863. But the truth is really that the Emancipation Proclamation really didn't free that many slaves. It didn't free the vast majority of slaves. First of all, it didn't even apply to the border states, the slaves in the border states that stayed um, uh, loyal to the Union. And then, of course, the USA could no more dictate, you know, what the Confederate States of America did with its citizens than Jefferson Davis um, could command Lincoln um, to leave the, quote, peaceful and contented slaves alone, lest he incite them to a general assassination of their masters, end quote. But more important than all that, the slaves did not wait around for a proclamation or a piece of paper to say that they were free. Between half a million to 800,000 of the three and a half million slaves, they ran away during the Civil War. They freed themselves. They did not need a piece of paper or someone coming to tell them uh, what they had come, what many uh, African-Americans have come to know, that this war was a war of freedom and emancipation, that it was about slavery. Now, uh, these uh, runaways, they ran to the north, but many of them ran to the Union lines right there in uh, the South's backyard. And many of them set up camps, and they started free communities. And those who didn't run um, were already shifting you know, the power dynamics on the plantations and the farms throughout the South, including Texas. So therefore, Africans were already forging these new visions of freedom and citizenship long before General Gordon stepped onto the balcony of Ashton. Um, now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that Juneteenth is not important. It is, because with that announcement, it was only then that Texans were forced to finally acknowledge that African-American men, women, and children were now free and that they were no longer property. And the word spread quickly. Some people stayed put, others left immediately. They wanted to get away from their masters. Many wanted to find family members who had been sold away. Um, some people went north, some people even left the country. So June 19th became Afro-Texans' uh, New Emancipation Day, or Jubilee Day, as it was often called. Now, the first Jubilee Day celebrations took place, of course, right under that Ashton Villa uh, balcony. The first official celebrations began in 1866. And from the very beginning, the black church, which was the most important independent institution in the African-American community, was really central to those celebrations. And in the 1860s, at Peyton Colony, which was a freedom colony in Blanco County, uh, the Baptist church there held a special Juneteenth service. And then the children marched in a circle from the church 
to the school, to the cemetery, and then back to the church in kind of a symbolic reuniting of the free living with the deceased and unfree um, ancestors. Um, they even had fireworks. So they created these by cutting holes in trees and they filled them with gunpowder and set them on fire. So by 1870 um, in Texas, uh, there were nearly 50 freedom colonies or these settlements of emancipated African Americans. And there were hundreds of them, but 50 of them were located near Comanche Crossing in Limestone County. And the largest and most popular Juneteenth celebrations occur, occurred right there. So African Americans also celebrated in uh, communities in Texas City, in Texas cities, in Austin and Houston especially, were very popular. They even purchased land creating these emancipation parks to hold their Jubilee Day celebrations. Now, there are not a lot of scholarly sources on Juneteenth. But a few people who talk about it mention that they start using the term Juneteenth instead of Jubilee Day after 1900. But in my research, I've actually found that it was in the early 1890s, as early as 1891, that African Americans in their communities were calling Jubilee Day Juneteenth. And Juneteenth, of course, is obvious. It's just June and 19th, where they cut out the nine and they squeeze the June and the teenth together. So by the early 1900s, Juneteenth celebrations had spread from Texas to southeast Oklahoma, to southwest Arkansas, and parts of Louisiana. And they rivaled uh, Independence Day celebrations. Now, to people looking on the outside, um, they probably saw these people celebrating and eating and playing games, and they thought of them as these kind of just jubilant celebrations that took place on uh, one day a year. But during these celebrations, especially in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s, blacks were talking about their political rights. They even had politicians, people running for local governments and state governments, come to the Juneteenth celebrations and picnics and stump to get the African-American vote. They encouraged blacks in attendance to register to vote because freedom included the right to vote. And it was that right was slowly being taken away during the last decades of the um, 1800s. And of course, it was completely compromised by the early 1900s. Now, Juneteenth can really teach us not just about the past, but it's, it, it's also important in our more recent uh, history, society, and politics, and culture. So if we just look at it inside American history, instead of something that happens parallel to or outside of US history, then we, th we get a deeper meaning out of what some would consider a hidden history. For example, in the late 19-teens, to the 1930s, those large-scale, community-wide Juneteenth celebrations actually became less frequent. So people continued to celebrate you know, in their homes and in their churches and in their communities, but those really big county-wide uh, celebrations like the ones at Comanche Crossing uh, really became almost non-existent. And so I had to ask myself, well, you know, why is that? So I thought, you know, about looking at the period, what was going on in America at the time. So by World War I, um, the late 19-teens, segregation laws firmly in place, 
uh, there was this tide of, of nativism that was engulfing the country. And so for anyone who doesn't quite remember what nativism means, that means there was this rejection of outsiders, this fear of foreigners. So I think that combining segregation, racial discrimination, with this xenophobia and uh, nativism led many whites and even many blacks, African-Americans, to see Juneteenth as un-American. Un-American because it focused on this dark period in American history, precisely at the time that the United States was trying to show itself as this um, global power, you know, on the world stage. And so, um, ironically, uh, therefore, Juneteenth was considered unpatriotic, that celebrating it showed that you were disloyal to uh, the United States. And that time, not only did it commemorate this really dark period, but those were also some dark days at that time because this was uh, during the Red Summer, which was a wave of deadly uh, lynchings and race riots that occurred um, in the United States from 1919 to 1921. But, you know, Juneteenth is a spirit of freedom and it refuses uh, to just die. So there's this renaissance that comes in Juneteenth that occurs shortly before the United States goes to World War II. And the really important catalyst for this renaissance happens right up 75 in Dallas, Texas. So you have Antonio Maceo Smith. He's an educator and he he's he's head of the Dallas Negro Chamber of Commerce and he's trying to lead efforts to create this commemoration or um, an exhibit of African-American life and culture for the Texas sesquicentennial in 1936. Well, the state fair organizers refuse. And so Smith does not give up. So he goes over their heads to the federal government and he actually secures a $100,000 grant. And he uses that money to build the Hall of Negro Life on the state fairgrounds. Now, local white leaders protested the construction of the hall, but there was nothing that they could do. It was completed and it was dedicated on Juneteenth. 1936. And so over 46,000 African Americans streamed into the state fair um, grounds for the largest Juneteenth celebration ever held up to that time. Now the hall unfortunately was demolished soon after the fair closed, but that spirit, uh, uh, that rekindled spirit, uh, they could not destroy that. And so then it was after 1936 that the Juneteenth celebration um, was revived in these more public co um, commemorations. That's because African-Americans now were emboldened um, because of the, their success during the centennial. And also this was wor uh, in the 40s, you had World War II, and, and African-Americans were fighting for what they called a double victory. So there was a victory over fascism abroad and a victory over racism at home. And so these Juneteenth celebrations in the 40s and the 50s really highlighted this idea, the rekindled this idea of equal rights. Um, they would also honor former slaves and African-American veterans. Now, during the civil rights movement that really started to kick off in the mid-1950s through the 1960s, many blacks really were more conscious 
you know, about drawing the connections between their present day movement and their ancestors' historical struggles for freedom and for equal rights. So uh, in debate and reactions surrounding the Civil Rights Act, uh, many made the explicit connection between that act and fulfilling the freedoms that were first guaranteed in the Emancipation Proclamation and that the Juneteenth uh, you know, general orders show this deferred um, freedom. So President John F. Kennedy mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation in a speech calling for um, federal civil rights uh, legislation. And after his assass um, assassination, LBJ pushed through the bill. And one of his aides told him, quote, it's equivalent to signing an Emancipation Proclamation, end quote. So the deferred freedom that was celebrated during Juneteenth speaks to this struggle for equality and rights that continued through the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the activists in, 19, in the 1960s clearly made those connections to Juneteenth. The organizers of the 1968 Poor People's March held a Solidarity Day rally, and they held it on Juneteenth. 1968. And African Americans attended from all over the country. And so after they returned home, they either revived or they initiated Juneteenth celebrations in their hometowns around the United States. You're listening to From Juneteenth to Reparations, the freedom promise of unfinished resolve on making contact to find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org. Sign up for our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, we'll expand our conversation of Juneteenth to include a case for reparations. Next, we'll hear from attorney Fanya Davis as she explores reasons for the U.S. government to reckon with and compensate for centuries of stolen labor and legal oppression. As the 2020 U.S. presidential campaign cycle ramps up, Democratic presidential candidate hopefuls vying for their party's nomination are taking positions on the issue of reparations for slavery, elevating the discussion to the mainstream. Fanya Davis was one among a panel of scholar activists who described some of the experiences under which black people lived during and after slavery and recounted examples of what reparations could look like. Making contact producer Monica Lopez brings us these excerpts from a panel recorded this spring at Mills College in Oakland, California. Fania Davis worked for 30 years as a civil rights trial lawyer and later in the field of restorative justice with youth in the schools and in the juvenile justice system. That work arose from my, my origin story, having been born in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which we called Bombingham, Alabama, during the height of um, segregation and the height of the movement resisting it. I was born on Dynamite Hill. That was my neighborhood. Homes were bombed in our neighborhood because uh, black families moved in, pushing the color line. Uh, so that experience, growing up in apartheid and uh, you know, going to stores where we couldn't be served and, and, and being called... Uh, derogatory names and being insulted every day and being exposed every day to the pervasive social messaging that black people were subhuman in addition to the racial terror is what set me on this path of being 
many ways a warrior for social justice, and in later life, after so much fighting and anger, um, both as a trial lawyer and as a street activist, I had some experiences which made clear to me that I needed to bring healing energies into my life, and that was my attraction to restorative justice, which is based on indigenous healing and peacemaking. Slavery existed as an institution in the United States for nearly two and a half centuries. When former slaves were finally emancipated, Jim Crow laws ensured that the segregation and unequal treatment of African Americans would continue for about another century, until 1964 and the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Over the years, there have been symbolic gestures and some tangible offers of redress. In 2008, the U.S. Congress offered an apology to African Americans for slavery and Jim Crow. First, I just want to say this is 2019. It's exactly 400 years the first African uh, captives were kidnapped and, and brought to this land. And I just want to speak that, name that, uh, 400 years. And the reparations movement, quiet as it's kept, has been going on for about that long um, and finally gaining a little traction after 400, after all those years. So the apology in 2008, um, important. However, in the restorative justice movement, we say it's not just about saying sorry, it's about doing sorry. I remember one of the elevator women um, during the Kavanaugh hearings said, that she had serious concerns about uh, Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice because for her, justice was recognizing that pain had been caused, taking responsibility for the pain that was caused, and number three, working to repair the harm, the pain that was caused. The first actual reparation effort that's recorded was by an African-American woman who was freed after her slave master left the country. He was Isaac Royal, and in fact, he was one of the main founders or or patrons of Harvard University. Isaac Royal was a royalist, so when the war was lost and the Americans won and the British lost, he fled to the Caribbean. And one of his slaves, Belinda, proffered a petition claiming that she was entitled to reparation for the many, many years of labor, and she won. And then after that, uh, there were Quakers who who insisted that the Quakers could not own slaves, and and they needed to free them if they did own them, and give them reparations. And then you had General Sherman after um, 1865, uh, after Emancipation Proclamation, there was a field order number 15 that uh, said that the government would give newly freed slaves 40 acres and then later a mule. Uh, And some African Americans did actually receive that, uh, but very, very short-lived. As soon as Andrew Johnson came, who succeeded uh, President Lincoln, the uh, special order was repealed. One I forgot that just occurred. Uh, Georgetown students voted that they would pay reparations to the 272 descendants of the slaves who were sold uh, to keep Georgetown from going bankrupt. There was a commission that was formed to study Georgetown's complicity with slavery. That was a couple of years ago. 
they identified as a result of this research 272 descendants. And now they're in the process of talking to these descendants uh, to discuss what reparations might look like. And they've already started to offer legacy admissions to descendants of the 272. Uh, I, I think some descendants want a truth and reconciliation uh, fund, and that they have not agreed to that as yet. But the students, you know, just did a really, this is historic what they've done. And, you know, there's the Chicago Torture Reparations Fund, where the government, uh, I don't know exactly how much, but more than $5 million, I think considerably more, I'm not sure, to survivors of black families uh, who were tortured and and, uh, brutalized and terrorized by police. And that reparations fund involves creating uh, a trauma center and offering trauma services, job training, income supports, uh, housing. And then in Charlottesville, there is also a reparations fund. It's about $4 million, I believe. But even though it's small, it offers some glimpse into what macro-scale reparations might look like. There are income supports or checks, you know, like Jews get checks, uh, but it goes beyond checks. That's not nearly individual compensation is important, uh, but uh, supports for housing and education and parks and scholarships and supports for youth are part of that Charlottesville reparations fund. There are many ways in which reparations may be made, and Germany, says Fania Davis, offers examples of how that country has made reparations for the Holocaust. Germany, as I said, started with Czechs. Um, now, Germany has done an incredible work, especially in the education area. Um, they have um, completely transformed the curricula to um, require that the Holocaust be taught not just in history or just in sociology classes, but in music classes, in art classes, um, in Every single course, every child in a public school in Germany must learn about the Holocaust. And every year, teachers are given continuing education so they can teach uh, more effectively. I think we can, we can definitely learn a lot about that. I saw a U.S. News and World Report front page that said that only 8% of high school uh, students in a study knew that slavery had anything to do with the Civil War. So the first thing that needs to be done in in any campaign, a strategy for reparations, is truth-telling. Like I mentioned earlier, universities are starting to do that. And and many white individuals, growing numbers of white individuals, are starting to do that. That's really, really important. Um, And then, you know, taking responsibility, saying sorry and doing sorry. Fundamentally, any reparations movement must be anti-capitalist because that's where all of these pervasive human rights violations, the the genocide, uh, the slavery, and all of the afterlives of slavery. It's the colonization uh, and conquest of uh, peoples of color, Asia, Africa, Latin America. That was all ushered in by racial capitalism. And we say racial capitalism. There's no such thing as just plain capitalism. It's racial capitalism. 
because there would be no capitalism uh, without Mississippi. Manchester, yes, England, but you know there would be no capitalism were it not for cotton. It's it's and were it not for all of the conquests uh, in third world countries, and so we've got to figure out how to completely transform our society, our government, our schools, our economic system. That needs to be a bottom-up, uh, participatory, grassroots process. But one of the things that we really can't do, in my view, is to have uh, a process that's dominated by experts, and that's a top-down process. The last thing I'll say on, on, on this question is we need a healing component. The trauma resulting from genocide and land theft and forced assimilation and the Indian boarding schools and slavery and, and convict leasing and lynching to, until today, you know, with uh, mass incarceration, the school-to-prison pipeline and uh, the immigration oppression that we're witnessing. And it has really hurt us, all of us. That was Fanya Davis, social justice activist, civil rights trial attorney, and restorative justice practitioner, speaking as part of a panel on reparations at Mills College in Oakland, California. Special thanks to KLW for permission to use their recording of Fania Davis. She spoke on a panel about the multicultural dimensions of reparations. Again, you've been listening to From Juneteenth to Reparations, The Freedom Promise of Unfinished Resolve on Making Contact. Special thanks to Allen City TV in Allen, Texas, for permission to excerpt the recording of Dr. Shanette Garrett-Scott. This is Making Contact, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thank you for listening.